Greyhound leader. Track one, over. Track one, we reach Greyhound leader, over. Welcome to the Track One Podcast, Fit the 37th. My name is Mark McManus. This week I'm delighted to welcome back my fellow ape descendant, Richard Packer. Welcome. Hello. Hello, how are you? I'm very well, how are you? Good, thank you. Uh, so our older listeners might remember that you watched Series 10 of Doctor Who for us, having never really watched Doctor Who at all before, and found that you quite enjoyed it? I did, very much enjoyed it. Very good. Uh, and since we last spoke, um, we've had the final episode of Peter Capaldi's era as the Doctor, um, which was the Christmas special, where he, he bowed out to make way for the 13th Doctor, Geordie Whittaker. Did you catch that one? I did, indeed. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to sort of remember. Yeah, it's pretty dramatic, as I remember rightly. But what's to me, anyone? Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully first... it was meant to be dramatic. I mean, if it wasn't, then I would have got it totally wrong. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so the first time you've seen the Doctor regenerate, probably? Uh, yeah, it was. And I think we had a bit of a conversation last time about uh, the way in which uh, what generation looks like rather depends upon the technology available at the time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, um, yeah some of them are more uh, special effects laden than others. But yeah, obviously groundbreaking in the sense that we now have a female Doctor. Uh, yes, indeed. Yes, highly controversial, I believe. Uh, in, in some quarters, it's... Uh... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, but this time, we are going to be talking about The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, um, the kind of the original, the proper original radio series, um, the hexagonal phase, which is recently broadcast on Radio 4, and you've recently watched that wholly remarkable Doctor Who story, City of Death. I have. Thank you very much for sending it. No problem at all. So we will uh, we will see as a as a sort of non Doctor Who fan what you made of some of the uh, the original twentieth century series as well. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams, starring Peter Jones as the book with Simon Jones and Geoffrey McGiven. So I think going back to when we were at school together, you introduced me to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy because you had. Um, audio cassettes of the original broadcast, I think. Well, maybe not the original broadcast, but um, a broadcast of the first couple of series. Yeah, that's right. So it was a radio broadcast. I think they're probably illegal these uh, cassettes. So I mean, <laughs> whether we're, we're you know leaving ourselves open to some sort of uh, legal action by revealing this, I'm not sure. But I think they were uh, <laughs> they were recorded from the radio. By a curate who worked with my father. Ah, right. Well, I think um, probably the curate is, is um, the person who recorded it, and you was distributing it, perhaps open to legal action. I. Uh, <laughs> so, so you feel you're completely innocent? It, basically, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yes. Well, I apologise to the curate. Who I'm guessing he's <laughs> no longer a curate, unless he was a particularly unsuccessful curate um, who, uh, who 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 I've now dropped in it. <laughs> As long as we don't name him. Yeah, no, exactly, yes. Um, but yeah, I think that, that was my introduction to the series, and obviously absolutely loved it from the first time I heard it and kind of went on to read the books and, and whatnot. Um, and we've been re-listening to the, the first couple of series recently, um, found some on the internet that you can hear them, um, which I will link to in the show notes to this episode. Um, first time I've listened to them for a few years, but they... Um, they haven't really kind of lost anything, have they? They're still absolutely superb. 
No, I agree. They, they remain absolutely brilliant. And I was just, I was pleased to discover them online because although I do still have that original set of illegal uh, tapes, um, I'm, I'm not still sure I have the ability to play them anymore. Um, and uh, and even if I do, it's amazing how you get used to things being easier these days and having to do things using tapes and such seems an awful amount of hassle and you just sort of don't do it. Um, so discovering them online and being able to just uh, start it up again with just the press of a button like that is, uh, uh, was, yeah, so I went all the way through them from beginning to end. And yes, as, as brilliant as ever, enjoyed them just as much as the first time and the second time and the third time and the fourth time and so on. I know what you mean about kind of playing things. Like I've um, invested a lot of money in getting kind of all the Doctor Who's on DVD, um, but most of the the new series since the uh, since it came back in two thousand five are now on Netflix. And it's, if there's one that I want to watch, it's far easier to just kind of bring Netflix up um, and and select it on there than it is to go and get the the box set and open it out and find the right DVD and put it in the play and everything. Um, yes, yeah, so but we've been having the experience the opposite way around here because of the uh, of having watched The Good Wife for a long time on uh, Netflix uh, and then it leaving Netflix uh, when we hadn't yet finished it um, and therefore having to uh, having to go and buy the box set of the whole thing <laughs> in order to continue watching it um, and uh, discovering only then reminding ourselves of the hassle that DVDs are compared to, compared to just putting on Netflix yeah and and when you compare sort of a DVD to a video cassette which you used to have to rewind and all that kind of stuff as well when you finished it it's, um, yeah, we do kind of get used to it and get lazy quite quickly, don't we? Um, we do, yeah. I should also point out, take this opportunity, that uh, um, a few days after buying the entire box set of The Good Wife, uh, it then appeared on Amazon, I think, um, uh, Amazon Prime. And so um, if any of your listeners would like to buy a complete box set <laughs> of The Good Wife, then you know, this, this is your opportunity. The Good Wife is brilliant. We, we um, me and my wife were watching it and we were... Um, kind of we had one season to go when they when they announced there was like a month left of it being on Netflix so we, we raced through it um, <laughs> very good but now the, the sequel series The Good Fight uh, the second series that is currently being broadcast on more four I think maybe um, that's even better than The Good Wife it's absolutely superb yes I'm looking forward to it I think uh, the thing's being made faster than we can watch it at the moment actually so uh, <laughs> but at some point we will catch it You'll catch up, and then the, um, the, the the good fight only has ten episodes in a series as well, so you'll uh, uh, you'll eventually get there. Um, but the Hitchhikers Get the Galaxy, I think we were sort of um, messaging each other a few times while listening to it. One of the things that you picked up on a notice was in the uh, fit the first the, the first episode is when Ford Prefect buys. Can't remember how many pints of beer he buys. Yeah, no, I can't remember exactly, but it's quite a few. And, yeah. and some peanuts. Yeah, and then he gives, he hands the barman a fiver and goes, keep the change. <laughs> and the barman says, what, from a fiver? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Those were the days. Yeah, yeah, yeah indeed, yes. Yes, yeah, when everything was cheap. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what I uh, hadn't realised, there's been, there's, there's been a couple of things on Radio 4 recently. We've had the Douglas Adams Papers and um, Douglas Adams A Celebration. Um, that because uh, he wrote the first two series of Hitchhikes Out of the Galaxy, um, which I kind of think is the the only proper ones, I suppose. Um, yes. That John Lloyd um, wrote the last two episodes of the first series is something from the Douglas Adams papers, 
because uh, he was kind of um, well famously struggled from writer's block quite heavily uh, and was struggling towards the end of the series and he brought John Lloyd on um, and then <laughs> consequently dropped him and that's why the novelisation of the first series only covers the first four episodes yeah um, I mean they were, they were really interesting those two and then uh Douglas, the, the Doctor and Douglas Adams, or Douglas Adams and the Doctor, or whichever the uh, uh, whichever the other one was uh, that was on recently, were really really interesting uh, yeah. um, radio series. Really really interesting insight into uh, um, into Douglas Adams and the way he wrote, which sounds completely terrifying in terms of it sounds as if he basically failed to write anything for the yeah. first ninety nine percent of the available time, and then wrote the whole, whole thing in about the last week. Yeah, um, Douglas and the Doctor, that one is. It's quite old, that one, but it just seems to have remained on the BBC iPlayer for a number of years. Um, and even at the moment, it says it's got at least a year still on there. So I'll link to those in the show notes as well. Um, but yeah, that seems to be a theme in the interviews and stuff, the people that work with him, isn't it? That he, um, if he was writing a book, he would write the first paragraph. It would take him about six months. <laughs> uh, and then he would, uh, he'd write the rest of it very quickly. Uh, yes, yeah, having spent most of the uh, first six months sitting in the bath with a cup of tea. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there's a famous quote by him as well. He says he really likes deadlines. He says, I love deadlines. I love the sound of them washing past. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, what I hadn't realised is after those first two series that there, um, there were sort of another three series uh, that were based on the books. Um, that were all made after his untimely death. Um, and they were all based on his novels. And then more recently, there's been the hexagonal phase, which is based on Owen Colfer's book and another thing, which I haven't read. I've read the books up to Mostly Harmless, but uh, many years ago now, and I, I can't really remember anything about it or, or kind of even what happens in which book or anything really. Yes. Yeah, and I don't think I don't think I've read any of it as far as I can remember. I think I've just listened to the radio uh, versions. Did you ever see the movie? It was two thousand. Yeah, I did. I wasn't greatly inspired. No, um, it was it was disappointing, wasn't it? Yeah, it was really. I, I mean, I do. Yeah, I, I yes, I, I have. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it wasn't great. I just think it works better in audio. I think it's very difficult to do uh, visually, uh, partly because some of the concepts and things were designed to be done visually or or at least when they were written the thought of having to do them visually wasn't really thought about um and you probably need a, a vast budget to really make them work yeah um the, you never saw the tv series either i think i might say i've i've seen clips of the tv series yeah. but i haven't seen the whole thing the one thing i did like about the movie i thought bill nighy as slighty bartfast was brilliant Yes, I do. I'm struggling to remember. I do like Bill Nighy, so that sounds quite uh, quite probable. Yeah, I remember because I, I remember watching it, and this being in 2005, this was this was when Doctor had just come back, and Christopher Eccleston had been cast as the Ninth Doctor, um, and it seemed like, um, certainly as reported in the press anyway, that the the final casting choice was down to Christopher Eccleston or Bill Nighy, um, and. After seeing Bill Nighy as Slightly Bartfast and the way he played that character, I remember just thinking what an amazing Doctor he would have been. Um, I mean, from a lot of other roles as well, but particularly as Slightly Bartfast, I thought playing him like that would have, um, yeah, that would have been brilliant. Um, yeah, I can't imagine he'd be 
good as a doctor. I, th- I think I, I feel as if the best doctors are the ones who seem to have multiple layers, and I think Bill Nye has that. You, you have that sort of you have that veneer, but then you always have a sense of something else underneath it. Yeah, yeah, he he, he would have been superb. Um, yeah, so the hexagonal phase. Um, I was a bit disappointed by this one. Yes, yeah. I, I mean, I have to say, my expectations coming into it were pretty low, and I was still disappointed, um, <laughs> which, which isn't a good sign. I, I, I mean, I, I should sort of um, start, I think, by saying the reason my expectations were low is not to do with the thing itself, but is to do with me, because I know that I'm really bad with things where I, I have in my head a fixed kind of um, impression of how it should be in terms of how it should be read, how, who the actors should be, the right people, and so on. And then when it all changes, I know I'm really bad at adapting that, and I tend to dislike it. Um, and it could be really good, but it's just I, it's just me failing to adapt to, to the new actors and the new voices and so on. Um, and so I was very suspicious of myself that, I, that however good Hexagonal Phase actually was in itself, um, that, that I that I wouldn't I wouldn't take to it. Um, but having said that, I was determined to give it every chance and to slog on through it, even if I wasn't enjoying it, on the basis that I might gradually gradually get into it, which also happens sometimes. Um, and and so so I was going to give it every opportunity, um, but I I never really got into it all, all the way through, pretty much. Yeah, I I kind of listened to each episode as it came out, and then listened to most of them again in um in one go or in a couple of sittings just while I was kind of doing other stuff. It does work better listening to it all together. Um, but it's, yeah, I think it doesn't really work. And your point about kind of recasting, uh, Jim Broadbent plays Marvin in this one. Um, who I really like Jim Broadbent. Um, but he's like the original Marvin is he, like, can't really be beaten. Um, no, I, I just felt the original Marvin has such a lack of character in his sort of deadpan robotic voice, and that's what makes the lines work, because they're brilliant lines in a deadpan robotic voice. Um, and I feel as if John, Jim Broadbent tries to give character and tries to give meaning and intonation through the voice, um, which you can completely understand as, a, as an actor. Uh, surely you're going to do that, um, but 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 actually it doesn't work. What works is is the original, I think. Yeah, and Stephen Moore, who who played the original Marvin, is is still alive and is kind of I think still working. He was in Doctor Who as recently as 2010. Um, the, the, I think the thing about Marvin was it was pointless to recast him because he's he's barely in it um, in the hexagonal phase and doesn't really impact on the plot at all. Um, so yeah, it just seemed like an odd thing. It's like oh, we have to have Marvin in it, but then recasting him so he doesn't sound as good, and then not having to do anything. Uh, yeah, yeah and, a bit, a bit. and particularly using somebody like Jim Broadbent, who who is you know who who is as you say a, a brilliant and 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 no doubt quite expensive um, yeah. uh, actor <laughs> to have on, and then and then give him out three lines. It just just all seemed very strange. Yeah, um, and I think. The as I say, it did kind of work better listening to it um, in, um, in in sequence, like one after the other. But listen to it week by week. Like the first episode was very, very continuity heavy. 
Um, and especially, the, I think because the, the most recent series is sort of um, nearly 10 years old. So, I mean, this is, this is a thing that you get kind of in, in Doctor Who fan circles as well about this fear that the casual viewer um, will turn off Doctor Who because there's too many continuity references or whatever. Um, and, and this is what a lot of people worry about with the, um, or have worried about with the outgoing executive producer and head writer Stephen Moffat, that there are too many references to, uh, to old stories. Um, but in this case, this is, you know, like... Um, following on from a radio series that was on, say, nearly 10 years ago um, that I completely missed, didn't even know they'd made. So the first episode is largely just recapping everything that has happened um, in the most recent series um, and then saying that it all didn't happen, it was all an illusion. Yeah, yes, I I just thought that they could just, there was no reason why the hexagonal phase couldn't just start with its own story and tell the story it was going to tell. There was just no reason to do all of the sort of linking back to where they were up to so far. Um, it, it would have been far, you know, people who have, who were fans of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and were aware of all the previous stuff would have made the links no problem. And people who were listening for the first time with the hexagonal phrase would have been would have enjoyed it much more. I think if it had just told its story. Yeah, I felt like that. Just take the, the characters that everybody kind of remembers and likes uh, and throw them into a new adventure. Yeah. Um, I feel like kind of continuity is not good for comedy stuff. You know, Red Dwarf kind of went down that route a bit. Um, kind of uh, after sort of Series 6 where they became very continuity heavy and that kind of thing and it just kind of stifles it, I think, and stymies it. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think it does that. And, and, and there's no need for it in the sense that if it's with a drama or something it can be important to have understood that continuity it can be important to the storyline but with comedy it's rarely important really you you, just, you may as well just not do it yeah no absolutely I did quite like um, John Lloyd who, who mentioned earlier as the voice of the book yes yeah as- I I did but I, I love Peter Jones' voice of the book, yeah. and I just feel he's irreplaceable, really. So, yeah, John Boyd was on a loser with me from the start, I think. But, uh, but I do actually agree he did it well. Yeah, I thought, um, I thought kind of tonally and stuff, he, um, um, he did quite well. And uh, it was quite nice because he's got the, the links to the series as well, that uh, Z co wrote some of the early stuff. Um, what I didn't realise was that, um, as well as producing all of Blackadder, John Lloyd was originally going to be the host of Have I Got News For You. Oh, really? No, yeah. I didn't know that. In the original um, kind of concept, it was going to be called John Lloyd's News Round. Um, <laughs> they, uh, <laughs> they filmed a, a pilot with him as the host, um, and uh, after which he decided he didn't want to do it, he was just going to produce it. And that's when Angus Dayton was uh, appointed as the host. Ah, I didn't know that. John, John Lloyd's News Round, that sounds like a whole... <laughs> that's like a whole different concept yeah um, but yeah I thought it was an interesting little tidbit that I uh, that I read about him you know. uh, and obviously he's a creator of QI as well which I like a lot oh yes yeah that's, that's also good yeah and a new lease of life under Sandy Doxvick I think yeah I think so I, I think it, I, I really like Stephen Fry um, and but, but I did think it had sort of got, got sort of exhausted itself really as a concept um, and uh, yeah, and and Sandy Sox has been been brilliant. 
Yeah, yeah, completely revitalized it, doesn't she? Yeah. Good. All right, so the other thing about thought about the hexagonal phase is how kind of peripheral the main characters are um, um, and, and quite passive. You know, you've got sort of um, Arthur Dent and Ford Prefect. They're just kind of just carried along by events, which they are to some extent in the, um, in the original series. But I don't know, I guess it's more, it's more from their perspective, isn't it, when they... Um, you know, then they've all gone ship, and then they, you know, they got the restaurant at the end of the universe, and uh, find themselves in like prehistoric times. It's... Yeah, I I feel as if they're important in the original because um, Arthur Dent, particularly, is the sort of viewer's eye on the world or listeners listeners ear on the world. Yeah, um, and and I think that brings out the absurdities of the things that are happening. And I think when you take them out of it, which the hexagonal phase to a great extent does, as you say, they're pretty peripheral, then you lose that. You, you lose that sort of, um, yeah, you, you lose that sense of the extraordinary. You also get that by this stage as well, Arthur Dent is quite an experienced kind of space traveller and stuff, which, which takes away from what you're saying there, that he's the, um, he's the kind of the ordinary person's view on it, isn't he? <clears throat> Yeah, I agree. You you almost need a new ordinary person to be thrown into it to uh, to get that view. <laughs> yeah, um, and it's a, ultimately it kind of comes down to this thing between Thor and Wildbagger, who I guess is a series. Uh, I guess who I guess is a character that's come up in the series since since the the second series finished um, and is brought back here. Yeah, um, I found Thor a bit exhausting, really. Um, I didn't didn't find him a particularly interesting character, and the whole sort of um, Scandinavian accent saying I, I thought of that. I mean, I get it, but then it just sort of went on and on, and it was a bit of an exaggerated accent. And I, yeah, I, I wasn't that keen. No, um, I think we both again we met each other the um, the song at the near the start of the second episode with uh, Zaphod's left brain. Um, I was kind of listening to that before work one morning. I was just like, ah, this is too early for this. And knocked it off. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I think I was, I, I was at the point of stopping, I, I think, at the point of the song. I I, I just, I mean, I, I think were it not for this podcast, I hope your listeners are duly grateful. I think were it not for this podcast, I, I might have called it today at that point and said, actually, I'm not enjoying this. I'm not going to continue listening to it because I thought that was that was pretty dreadful. Um, but if anything, I think that was a bit of a turning point in reality. I, I continued, and and I thought it got a bit better after that. I didn't think it became brilliant, but I thought it got a bit better. Yeah, I felt the same. And actually, the song and and the left brain um, is played by Mitch Ben, who I really like. When you kind of hear him on, um, I guess like the Now Show and stuff like that on Radio Four. Um, oh right, the yeah. stuff that he does. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with his other work. I don't think I am actually. No. Um, I follow him on Twitter as well. He's um, he's pretty funny, um, but yeah, that was uh, it. Did it did sort of pick up after that? But I think that's because we just had a very continuity heavy, as I say, episode one, which was an awful lot of recapping, um, and it was where kind of things started to uh, started to get going. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so, on the basis of the the original pilot script for the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, uh, Douglas Adams was invited to pitch an idea for Doctor Who 
which was made as a, a story called The Pirate Planet. And then following that, he then was appointed script editor for Doctor Who's 17th series. And this is where the City of Death falls, uh, which was his second story. You might have noticed from the DVD that it doesn't say it's written by Douglas Adams. I did notice that, yeah. Although it, it gets referenced as a script editor or something in the closing credits on one of certainly on one of the episodes, I think. Yeah, he was a script editor for that whole series, um, and what happened was that the uh, an original script came in by a writer called David Fisher, who'd already written a couple of stories for Doctor Who. Um, they found that it wasn't really suitable, but David Fisher wasn't available to rewrite it because he's going through a divorce and, and stuff like that. So Douglas Adams and uh, Graham, Williams, Graham Williams, who was the producer of Doctor Who then, just kind of holed themselves up for a weekend at, at Williams' house and just kind of rewrote the whole thing. Um, so it's basically mostly now by Douglas Adams and there's only a few elements of the original script which is called The Gamble with Time and was set in Monte Carlo in 1928 um, remaining um, and a couple of the kind of the weird things that are in it um, and if you remember there's, there's a scene in the cafe where the Doctor and Romana are being or Romana is being sketched by an artist um, yeah. and then when they see the sketch it's, um, it's a, the face is a, a, the, a clock face which is broken um, yeah. which doesn't have anything to do with the story and is just kind of a weird thing that happens to them and isn't referenced again. Um, and that's just something that kind of carried over from that original script. Uh, okay, yeah. Uh, so that's how that's how it's basically, it is Douglas Adams has written it, but there were rules about, um, I think, uh, producers and script editors writing script because it was taking work away from writers and things like that. So it's credited as David Agnew, which is a made-up name which was used in BBC drama for when there was um, kind of uh, dispute or um, a lack of clarity over who had the authorship of a TV show. It's funny because I didn't know that. And when you mentioned the name David Agnew, I thought, I, I thought oh, I think I've seen this stuff before. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's actually becoming one of my favourite writers. <laughs> Um, so yeah, you could well have seen him, uh, seen his name on any number of kind of um, BBC stuff from that year, I guess. Um, so this is the first time you've seen Tom Baker as the Doctor. What what was what were your thoughts on uh, on his performance? I yeah, I mean, I really like Tom Baker. I think before before you sort of introduced me properly to Doctor Who, then you know, if, if somebody said Doctor Who to me, I thought Tom Baker. He, he was the Doctor in my mind. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think he he does it brilliantly. Um, I think he's uh, um, it, it's very funny, but also um, a good sort of um, serious actor when the when the moment requires it. Um, I mean, I think one of the things that stood out to me about City of Death, as compared to other Doctor Who episodes that I've seen, was the amount of comedy in it. I mean, it is almost almost a comedy, really. Whereas other Doctor Who is, it has funny elements in it, but it doesn't feel like it's primarily a comedy. Yeah, I think I think Douglas Adams is probably the writer who most pushes it to the line of um, of almost taking it to out and out comedy. Um, there are, you know, even uh, Stephen Moffat came from a, a sitcom writing background and, and and just kind of pushed the the humour. Um, sometimes some of his stories, but but yeah, Douglas Adams ones uh, uh, genuinely brilliant, I think. Um, and I love, um, I think 
going back to HI's Guide to the Galaxy, Simon Jones as Arthur Dent is absolutely brilliant casting. And him delivering Douglas Adams' lines is great. But I think equal to that in my mind, Tom Baker delivering Douglas Adams' dialogue um, is, is perfect as well. Yeah, I feel like you can tell that he loves the script, that, it, that he really enjoys it, and, and it, it, it really works for him. Yeah, and um, I, you, you've listened to The Doctor and Douglas, haven't you, the, uh, the Radio 4 documentary? I have. I think Lala Ward, who plays Romana in this story, talks about... Um, Douglas Adams being one of the few writers that would dare to come to rehearsals because uh, <laughs> uh, Tom Baker wasn't always complimentary about the the writers and the writing. No, I like that description. I, I, the sort of idea of Tom Baker as being almost quite a similarly uh, similar character, um, out of uh, uh, away from being a character in himself. It almost feels as if the character that comes across the Doctor and uh, uh, when played by Tom Baker is quite similar to Tom Baker. Yeah, and he says that himself um, that he uh, it, it wasn't much of a, an acting stretch. That he uh, <laughs> he, is, he is like a brilliantly eccentric person as well, Tom Baker. Yeah, um, yeah, and, and famously he would describe scripts as whippet shit and stuff like that, and basically like kind of you know tear bits out of it and uh, fling it across the room and whatnot. And um, yeah, you can uh, you can imagine like the Doug Adams scripts he would he'd have enjoyed a lot. Um, yeah. Um, so, did, did you like the the story, um, City of Death? What did, what did you think of the, uh, the actual kind of the, like the villainous plot and everything within? Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I mean, it was it was a good story. You could you could follow it and make good sense of it. Um, and and as as I generally find with Doctor Who, there were various bits where I couldn't quite make the connection. Um, either due to uh, possibly needed a bit of context from uh, um, uh, sort of uh, earlier parts of Doctor Who, or, or, or maybe it was just that it was a slightly random bit, or that I just didn't get it. But but but, but generally speaking, um, yeah, it was it was good. You could sort of uh, uh, there was a real there was a proper sense of um, sense of peril, if you like, within the uh, within the script and within the goings on, uh, and it felt as if big things were being dealt with. Um, and and then sort of yes, thrown in alongside that, there were plenty of nice uh, nice absurdities and things. And and I, I um, occasionally spent the opportunity to occasionally be uh, completely distracted by the length of Tom Baker's scarf and the fact that uh, whenever he was walking down a street, you constantly thought that the ends of the scarf were going to get under his feet because it was so long um, and things like that, uh, which uh, which which provided moments, occasional moments of distraction and amusement from the overall storyline. <laughs> Uh, well, the story goes with the scarf that um, the uh, the lady that they gave to the the the, the wool to to knit it um, because she hadn't been given any instructions, just used all the wool she'd been given, <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's how it ended up so long. I'm not sure if that's apocryphal or not because um, I think Tom Baker says that it was it was knitted by a lady called Begonia Pope, but nobody's ever been able to find her or any reference to her, so. It sounds unlikely as a, as a name, I have to say. But yeah, as you say, he's kind of, uh, kind of walking up and down, or running up and down streets a lot as well. This is the first time Doctor Who ever filmed abroad. Uh, so they do kind of make use of um, the, kind of the backdrop of Paris quite a lot, don't they? Yes, there's almost always either the Eiffel Tower or the Louvre or something <laughs> in the background. So it's certainly pointing out that they're in Paris. Yeah, most stories don't have that quite amount of um, just running up and down streets either. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but yeah, they, it was always set in Paris. Um, 
Uh, so they, they sort of priced up actually just taking three members of the cast to Paris or recreating it in a studio and they realized it'd be far cheaper just to just to get them over there. So uh, so they took them over and uh, yeah, I think it gives it a different look to uh, to any other Doctor Who story, particularly from that era. Yeah, I, I mean, the other people in shot when they were film, filming looked very natural, almost as if they didn't clear the streets and sort of have actors. They just filmed it amongst the people of Paris. I don't know whether that's true or not, but it looked like that. It, it is true um, because Doctor Who wasn't shown in France at that time. Um, so whereas when they, whenever they filmed on location in the UK, um, tons of like school children and people would turn up to try and meet Tom Baker... Um, and he'd be mobbed. Nobody in in France really knew who he was, so he could wander around Paris, and they could film there um, pretty much kind of undisturbed. So uh, yeah, so basically, no, they just took. Um, I think they took the three kind of. Uh, they took uh, Tom Baker and Lala Ward, Tom Chadbon who plays Duggan, um, and then the the kind of the the thugs that uh, that worked for Scarlioni, who I think are non-speaking. Uh, they, they just took those guys over. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I thought it were, I mean, it looked quite cold. Did they do it in winter? Okay, thank you. It was very <laughs> chilly. I think I, th- I believe. Yeah, I think when you read some of the kind of behind the scenes stuff, it was it was sort of cold and wet, um, <laughs> and not that nice for a lot of it. There's um, some of the behind the scenes stuff as well you hear about is that um, it was a bank holiday on one of the main days of filming, so they um, the the art gallery that the TARDIS is parked in. Um, they couldn't really film the uh, the scenes as they were supposed to, where the, the Doctor was supposed to walk in, um, because it was closed. Um, and I think they, they... So they did the scene where the Doctor kind of goes up to it, and he was just supposed to walk in. So they had to improvise. I think he gets the sonic screwdriver out and opens it, and then the next scene is in the studio back in London, where he, um, he kind of makes his way in, when he travels back in time to Leonardo da Vinci's workshop. But one of the takes, I think Tom Baker shoved the door too hard and set the alarm off. <laughs> <laughs> so they all just scarpered. Um, and then, uh, yeah, they, 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 it took them a while to find a cafe that would open to let them film in there and stuff. So that the one that they'd arranged um, was, was all closed for this bank holiday. So uh, it's probably why the streets maybe were a bit quieter as well, I guess. Yeah, I suppose so. And a, a cameo from John Cleese as well. Yes, I spotted that as the art admirer. Yeah, one of the one of the people that John Cleese um, had suggested that could be with him in the art gallery was Alan Bennett. Um, so it was just kind of whoever was going to be in BBC Studio that day, I think, when they were kind of uh, <laughs> ringing around trying to get somebody. I um, I enjoyed the way that uh, um, that every time Duggan hit someone, you, you just sort of got the it was just off shot, and you just got the sound of the punch, and then next thing you saw that the person he'd hit was lying on the floor. Yeah. <laughs> Um, my favourite scene with Duggan is when they're in the cafe um, and uh, he's, he's in the cafe with Romana and he gets the wine bottle and his way of opening it is just to smash the top, <laughs> smash the top off the bottle and then pour it into the glass. <laughs> yeah, I like the bit where he jumps through the window. Although, yeah. again, that, that's, that's the sort of, you know, it's not quite in shot and there's a sound of breaking glass and then he's on the other side of the window. Yeah. He's uh, yeah, he's, he's quite a character, isn't he? He's one of those um, one of those characters. Everyone says it would have been great if he'd uh, stayed on as a companion and travelled with the Doctor for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd have been great to see him continue. I think. 
I suppose in a similar way to we were talking about Arthur in Hexagonal Phase, I, I quite like the way he, he comes across as quite bemused by the whole thing. You know, he's he's a bit he's almost reacting as 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 the viewer would. Yeah, yeah, he's very good at that. The um, the, the kind of reactions to the stuff when they find the six Mona Lisas and uh... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's very good. Yeah, it makes nice use of, uh, of time travel as well in the story. I think. The, uh, the fact that he travels back to Leonardo's workshop uh, and that's where he discovers that Scaglione has, has uh, different splinters of himself throughout time yes yeah no I, I, I thought that worked very well and was, uh, and was really clever I like, I like the time travel element uh, that, that really adds to it um, and the other kind of behind the scenes stuff with this one is that uh, Tom Baker and Lala Ward actually uh reportedly fell in love during the, the filming of this one while they were running around Paris uh, and got married oh, really? shortly afterwards, yeah. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah, there you go. They weren't married for very long. Oh, right, okay. Uh, she went on to marry uh, Professor Richard Dawkins. Oh, really? Yeah, um, introduced by Douglas Adams. Right. I can imagine Tom Baker's probably a fairly exhausting person to be married to. <laughs> I think, um, I, don't, I can't, I can't remember, I'm not sure if this is right, I've read Tom Baker's autobiography, I think she just kind of went out one day and never came back. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> was that just the most practical way of leaving? Possibly. Um, was, was Tom Baker married to anyone for very long? Uh, his current wife, I think they've been married to for quite a long time, yeah. Uh, okay, discovered somebody who can live with it. Yeah, his, his autobiography is an absolutely brilliant read. Um, if you ever get a chance to read it, it's called Who on Earth is Tom Baker? I do want to get in my favourite line from, uh, uh, from, from City, uh, City of Death, I think, which is where, uh, uh, which is where the doctor says, um, take arms against the sea of troubles. I told him that was a mixed metaphor, but he would insist. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> yeah, there's, uh, there's a great tradition in Doctor Who of that, of, of name dropping about all the famous people that he's... Um, that he's met or worked with or kind of inspired. Yeah. Cause there's a line in that as well about when, um, the countess, um, brings out, is it, um, is it Hamlet? The, the first edition of Hamlet or something or like the original manuscript. And, uh, the, the doctor reads it out and then he goes, I recognize the handwriting. It's mine. Uh, Shakespeare had writers cramp from writing all those sonnets. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a later episode where the Tenth Doctor does does meet Shakespeare on screen. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Although he talks, there's there's various times when he's, he's mentioned meeting him. And um, the first one that we actually see is uh, in this, a story called The Shakespeare Code uh, from I think 2007. Yeah. And I say, and he meets Shakespeare. He does indeed. Uh, so who did they have playing Shakespeare? Um, Dean Lennox. Wow, that's good knowledge. Yeah. So I, can, I struggle to remember names like that. I don't know where that one came from. Uh, <laughs> so that's available on Netflix if, uh, if you wanted to, uh, to catch up. I'll take a look. I could probably recommend some better ones if you... <laughs> <laughs> It's not particularly good. <laughs> uh, I, I, I quite like it, but there are there are ones that I like more. 
it's very subjective. I'm sure for some people that'll be their favourite story. That's the good thing about Doctor Who. Every story is somebody's favourite or somebody's first story, you know. Well, there seems to be a huge range of styles, you know, the, the, to, to the different Doctor Who episodes are, are very different to each other through, through different, partly through different time periods. But even in the most recent series, the, the, there were quite substantial differences in the, in the way different episodes were done. And that's the beauty of it. Yeah, every episode is a, a different writer, different guest cast, different location. Um, so even if it's an episode you don't really enjoy, you, you don't think, well, you know, I won't watch next week. You think, well, next week it'll be completely different again, and I probably will like it. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's that's the great thing about it. One of the one of the rumors actually though about series eleven, which is coming up, I think is going to be due to be broadcast in October. Um, I'm not sure if this is true or not, but something that was early on talked about was a writer's room, which is more of an American-style system where instead of having a writer writing an episode, you have a bunch of writers sitting around writing all the episodes. Oh, that that sounds controversial. Well, I I feel like you'd lose that that individuality that each each episode has and would um, just kind of homogenize the whole thing, you know? I can never quite imagine how it works, the writer's room thing. I mean, it just sounds an uh, intensely frustrating thing to work on because, you know, you, you what do you do? I mean, different people write different bits of it and then you piece it all together, but then you must have to homogenise it all a bit so that it's all sort of flows in the same way. You can imagine the sort of, I mean, when you're writing something, you have an idea and a flow in mind, don't you? And the idea that then it's pieced together with lots of other bits from different people you feel as if you keep losing what you're trying to do with it. Yeah, I guess, yeah, and I guess you, you can, a lot of your ideas you might bring to the fore might get kind of outvoted or or shouted down as well. There's um, a sitcom at the moment, I think it's in its final series on BBC One called Episodes. Yes, I'm watching it. Yeah, I'm a bit behind, but I have started watching it. Yeah, I've, um, it's a series I've quite enjoyed. It's, it's, I've watched it from the start. It seems to only be on every two or three years. Um, but that has a similar sort of situation in this series, doesn't it, where the two main characters, um, who are the writers, are part of a writer's room. And uh, it's probably very exaggerated, but probably not that much, um, of what a frustrating experience that is. Yeah, and and it's got one person, and whether this is how it normally works in real life, but I would have thought it probably has to. It has one person who's in the lead with it, so all the other writers are there just sort of throwing in their bits, making comments, making suggestions, but one person is leading it and, and taking all the decisions and, and effectively writing the thing. Yeah, yeah, showrunner type thing, yeah. Just go back to some of those uh, kind of Radio 4 documentaries about Douglas Adams, the people talk about how unlikely it was that he was chosen as a script editor, don't they? Because uh, although he was brilliant with ideas and, and kind of flights of imagination, the actual kind of nuts and bolts of a story and structure and things like that weren't, weren't his strong point. No, I mean, it does seem really surprising. He just, he sounds like the sort of character who you need, you, you need him there, but then you need somebody next to him to do, to do the nuts <laughs> and bolts and bring it all together and give it structure and make sure that, timelines work and so on and so forth yeah he did I mean the rest of that season um, while not uh, reaching the the heights of City of Death he does inject a lot of humour and uh, a kind of levity to it which uh, which I really enjoy and then there was the mention of the script which never got actually shown because of the strike yeah Sharda 
Um, that was actually uh, since um, I say like that kind of the Doctor and Douglas was from about 2010. At the end of last year, this was released on DVD and Blu-ray, where they'd animated the scenes that they didn't get a chance to film. Um, I think something like seventy uh, percent of it was filmed, so the remaining thirty percent um, was uh, was animated, and they got the original cast back in to provide the voices to read the scripts. So it's kind of it's kind of almost complete in that sense now. Um, yeah, it's interesting because when I saw it, listened to it on the Doctor and Douglas, I wondered whether somebody had done something like that to try to complete it. There's been there's been a number of attempts over the years. It came out on video in the '90s, and it just had sort of Tom Baker, just in between <laughs> where the scenes that were missing, just him narrating to camera what would have happened. Uh, but the animated one is uh, is a really great thing. Um, I did a podcast on this with Jason McLaughlin uh, in January, which is still available. I'll put a link in the show notes. So thank you very much for joining me today again, Richard. I'm pleased that you enjoyed City of Death. My pleasure. Thank you. Uh, join me next week on the Trap On Podcast when Kate Coleman will be back and we'll be discussing the short story anthology The Day She Saved the Doctor. I should also mention that available for a limited time is Time Shadows 2, which um, myself and Kate Coleman both have our first published short stories in. Uh, so this is a Doctor Who short story collection for a really good cause, which is Code, um, which helps adult literacy. Uh, we'll put links in the show notes to where that is available from. Thanks very much for listening, and thanks again, Richard. Thank you. Uh, see you next time. Goodbye.